Amen. We're going to begin by reading a couple of verses that will appear on the screen. They come from Psalm 24, and this is a psalm that helps us at the very beginning to think about what earth is and what the natural environment is, our topic for today. Can I encourage us to read this all together as one? I think there's power in what we say, and sometimes it can lodge in us in a different way. So as one, let's say together, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. We'll leave that there for a second as we consider it. Today, I want us to think about the way in which our disposition towards creation is indicative of our disposition towards the creator. Um, Often when looking at the different sectors of society like we've been doing over the last couple of weeks and will continue to for the next few you will find slightly different lists if you go online, you know, the seven sectors of society or the seven mountains sometimes called. The thing that I find really interesting and has struck me every time that I've looked at it and looked at it in preparing for this series is that you won't find the natural environment, the earth, anywhere. Now, it's not to say that the people putting those lists together are wrong or that they're doing the wrong thing. I'm not here to throw shade on them they're doing what they're called to. But it does seem to me as a bit of an omission if we don't think about the environment, if we don't think about the earth on which we all live. It's kind of the stage on which everything else is set, right? You can't have business or education if we don't have somewhere to live. We can't have any of the other stuff, the family, government, economics, without an earth on which it is built. And I think its omission points to a slightly bigger problem that maybe for so long it's been something that we've taken for granted. We just assumed it would always be there, it'd always be fine. And maybe that's caused some of the problems that I don't need to relay to you with our climate, with our species going out, becoming extinct. Maybe the fact that we haven't included it on lists like this means that we don't value it in the way that I think God would want us to. And it's been part of causing the problems that we see all around us. I want us to think through today what one big framework, if you like, for how I think God wants us to engage with the natural environment. The whole point of this series is to see how God's kingdom, the place where God's rule and reign is perfect and not obstructed in any way, applies in different sectors of society, in the family, in economics, in media and the arts. And today we're thinking about the natural environment. The question behind it all, I guess, is what would it look like for Christians to engage in this in a way that sees the kingdom of heaven become more and more a reality here on earth? And I want to think through one main framework that I've called to reverently enjoy. So this is the way I think God would want us to see creation. To start by recognizing that everything that we receive from God Everything that he's created is a gift. God is the source of everything that's good. God was the one that put everything together. The spirit hovered over this chaotic, formless space. And then creation came. God is the one that's behind it all. Without God, nothing would be. And God is also, like it says in Colossians, the sustainer of all things. It's like God's holding it together. God's making sure that it still has its integrity. God hasn't created it and then left it to one side. He created it and he sustains it. 
And what he gives to us, like Genesis says, is good. Creation with all of its different parts, animals and mountains and skies and seas. God said it's good. And then when humans came onto the scene, God said it was very good. It's like it was finished. It was complete. It was ready to go and to bring life to all the people and all the animals that had been created. And God at that point gave humans this big red buzzer word that's been talked about for centuries since. God said to the humans, you have dominion over creation, and I want you to bring life to it, to fill it, to subdue it. And ever since, we've been wondering, well, what does that word dominion mean? In its word sense, dominion means sovereignty, and we're thinking a lot about sovereignty at the moment, aren't we, with the king being coronated next weekend. Some people have seen that this dominion, this sovereignty, is a way of saying that I can do whatever I want to creation because I have dominion over it. I'm sovereign over this. God says so. So the way that I treat it, I can do what I want because I'm above it. Some have seen this as a way of being able to do anything they want and that to be okay. I want us to reframe that slightly because I don't think dominion is a carte blanche to do what you want. And there be no consequences or no questions asked. If everything that we receive is a gift from God, then yes, we are in some sense sovereign because he, he gave that to us. But we've got to remember that God is the sovereign, right? Over and above everything, he is supreme. He has dominion over those who have a smaller level of dominion. God is the source of everything that is good. And creation, I believe, is one of his biggest gifts to us. I'm sure we can all think of those moments, maybe like learning to swim down on the coast. Maybe it's being in a mountain range. Maybe it's being about the hills or by a stream. Those moments where you just think, this is amazing. How has this all come to be? We as Christians believe that it comes because God created it. God has given us creation as a gift And what we do with a gift is really important. If someone really important to you, a a loved one, gave you something that was really dear and really valuable, if you were just to kind of pick it up and then, I don't know, drop it on the floor or throw it over your shoulder, as much as that would cause damage to the gift, I think the person who gave it to you would also be like, what's going on? I've taken the time to give you something, to think about you, to put my own resources into buying this or making this. And you've looked at it and kind of discarded it. It wouldn't just be a problem with the gift. It would also reflect what you thought of the person. I don't know whether you've ever received like a picture from a little one, right? They've put all their time into it. And yes, it's not going to sell for much or win any awards. But they give it to you like it's the most valuable thing ever. And I think you're supposed to receive it as if it is the kind of art that would receive uh, lots of money and win lots of prizes. Because it's not really about the bit of paper and the scribblings and you trying to make out what all it means. It's about the person who did that and gave that to you. If we think that creation's a gift, which I think it is, how we treat it is also indicative of what we think of the giver. And the giver in this case is God. So, to reverently enjoy is a framework that I think helps us think this through in a good way. I think the first thing that we're called to do with creation is to be reverent towards it, to have respect towards it, because it's given to us as a gift from God. 
So as we approach it, I don't think dominion means screw it up and throw it over your shoulder. Mine it for everything that it's got. Exploit it for everything that it can offer you. And then move on. To be reverent is to treat it with respect, with dignity, with with honor. To, To tread carefully, you might say. But if we only treat it reverently, then I think we also fall into another trap. Because we could then say, well, let's not explore it because we might damage it. Let's not fill it because we might ruin it as we go. Let's not enjoy the things that it has to offer. If we're too reverent, this becomes like the china tea set that's all in the cupboard that you're never allowed to use. You know, the best plates that don't even come out at Christmas because they're too precious. To just be reverent is to put it in a category of, of not really using it for all its goodness. In a really grounded way here, if we're just reverent towards creation, then we wouldn't use the resources that are in the ground that make the technology that we all enjoy. We wouldn't cut the plants and work out that loads of them have got medicine in them that are really good for healing, and oh, God provided it as if he knew so well. So we are to be reverent, to treat it with respect, but if we're only reverent, if we take that too far then we don't enjoy the creation. And that brings us to the second thing. What we're called to do with creation, I think, is to enjoy it. It's to look at the mountains and say, wow, God created that. It's to swim in the rivers and the seas and say, whoa, God put this here for my enjoyment. Because God is a good God. He wants good things for you. And if he gives you a gift, he wants you to use it, to see it from every angle, to explore it from every side. If someone, again, gave you a gift that you just looked at and never really engaged with, that wouldn't be to use it to its full potential, would it? We are called to enjoy creation. But of course, again, if we take this too far and we over-enjoy or enjoy without any caveat, then we're not going to respect it. We're going to mine it for all that it's got. We're going to exploit it. We're going to leave it scarred and ruined. We're not going to work with it to see it replenished and renewed. We run the risk of exploiting it and all that it provides, to use it for ourselves and not to think of everybody else that also lives in this creation. It's the thing that we use and then throw over our shoulders. So we are called to enjoy it, but we're not called to over-enjoy it, if you like, or to enjoy it without caveat, without question. And I think holding these two things together is a key or a step towards doing what we should with creation, to be reverent and treat it with respect at the same time as enjoying it and using this gift for all the goodness that God has given it to us for. If we enjoy it on its own, we can lead to destruction. If we are too reverent on its own, we can lead to not engaging with it. If we reverently enjoy, I think we start to get the best of both poles, if you like, and draw together life in this earth in a way that's respectful and honoring to God. I think to reverently enjoy is to explore and to use creation in a way that's ultimately respectful to God. And that's the real heart of this, isn't it? Treating God in a way that's honorable. Glorifying him through our decisions and our actions. That's the framework that I like to think of this stuff through. To say, how am I enjoying creation but not going too far? Am I being reverent towards creation 
by not mining its resources and throwing them over my shoulder? Am I reverently enjoying? And maybe you can think of it a bit like a pendulum. There's two extremes, aren't there? I think what we've got to do is try and pull into the middle to say, God, we do love this and we thank you for creating it. We want to enjoy it to its best and through that, we want to do that in a way that respects and honors you. So that's the framework that I would offer to you to take seriously those words that the earth is God's and everything in it. To take seriously that God has given this to us as a gift that it will go back to him at the end of time and that his plan at the moment is to renew it in order that it would be brought to the life that in many places it is sadly losing. I want to offer two other thoughts that sit around this framework, I guess. And the question behind it all, as I said at the beginning, that I'd love to get you thinking about is what could I do? What might God be calling me to do in order to see his kingdom come in the natural world, just like it is in heaven and in every other sphere of society? Two thoughts really to offer you, and then we'll pray. The first is that the Anglican Church across the world has put together something called the Five Marks of Mission. They're going to appear on the screen, and it'll look a bit daunting to begin with. But basically, this is the Anglican Church's attempt to summarize the whole mission of God, which is the redemption of the whole world, the whole universe, and everything that we can see and everything that we can't see. It's to summarize the whole mission of God into these five statements. The first, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, to tell people about Jesus, his goodness, his gospel, the salvation in his name. Secondly, to teach baptize and nurture new believers. People that come to faith need to grow in that faith. So we need to teach them, we need to baptize them, and we need to nurture that faith so that they grow from from milk to meat, you might say. Third, to respond to human need by loving service, just like Jesus did as he looked out on the need that he saw around him. Broken bodies, empty bellies. He responded with loving service. He was the one that came not to be served, but to serve. And that's the way that he calls us to live too. Fourth, to transform unjust structures of society, to challenge violence of every kind and pursue peace and reconciliation. This says that we're not content to live within a broken system, but we want to transform unjust structures. We want to correct where there are imbalances or injustices, We want the system to help perpetuate this, not for us to always be working against it. And fifth, we strive to safeguard the integrity of creation and sustain and renew the life of the earth. This is where environmental care, the natural environment, comes into it in an explicit way. The reason I show you this is because I want to be a church that doesn't pursue one of these, but pursues all of them. Too often through time, churches have said, well, we think that one's okay, and all those are second class, if we think they're even worth it at all. We've become a, you know, we're a transforming unjust structures kind of a church. I don't want that to be the case here, because I don't think that that is the way the kingdom works. We can't have one of these on their own, because on their own, each of them is lacking in some respect. We can proclaim the good news, but then we're also called to to show it to people by serving them with need. We can look after creation, but we also need to be discipling people 
or else all we've got is a load of environmentalists that don't know Jesus. I don't want us to be the kind of church that picks one of these. I want us to be the kind of church that goes for all of them. There's good gospel things in each of them, and if there's something of God in there, I want it. And I want us to not be a one-dimensional church, but in this sense, a five-dimensional church. We need all of these things. And we need each of them to correct, if you like, the imbalances of the other. So that they each create a holistic picture of what it is to see the kingdom come to earth. Thinking about it particularly through an environmental lens, you could also read that into a lot of the others. For instance, that proclaiming the good news includes proclaiming that there's a creator. That this isn't random, right? That God created this and put it together with purpose and design and intent. Proclaiming the good news says there's a sustainer of all of this, and his name is Jesus. Human need that we want to respond to is increasingly being caused by environmental problems. People who don't have access to water in the way that they would used to have done because of drought. People who would once have had ready access to food, but actually their crops are starting to fail because the stage on which it's set is starting to unravel. It's a human need that we want to respond to is increasingly environmental. Wars and strife, what we see in uh, Mark number four, are increasingly going to be fought over environmental matters. People who can't live in their country anymore because it's underwater, because of rising sea levels, being displaced into other countries who maybe don't want them. Wars are going to happen over that. Difficulty could arise because of that. Access to water, particularly in the Middle East, is going to become one of the biggest issues over the next decades. So if we are serious about pursuing peace and reconciliation, well, how about we start by not causing the problem that's going to cause the wars, not just responding to it when it gets to the point of people going at one another. We want to be a five-dimensional church to pursue mission in every respect, and that includes and we're focusing on this week, safeguarding the integrity of creation so that it still looks beautiful and still points to a God who created it good and sustaining and renewing the life of the earth so that everyone who lives on it feels the love of God through the integrity of the creation, feels the benefit of Christians by their presence to renew it and to make sure that it leads to their flourishing and not to their ruin final thought comes from a few verses in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This is God speaking and he says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, whenever things go bad environmentally, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. This is a conversation between God and Solomon. And he says, when things go wrong environmentally, there's no rain, that's going to cause you some problems. When the locusts devour everything that you've been growing, when plague causes people to suffer or to die... There is a response that you as my people can make. If my people, called by my name, belonging to me, will humble themselves, walk gently, if you like, not think of themselves as having dominion to the point of domineering, 
but dominion to serve, to bless. If they will humble themselves and pray like we've done today. If they'll seek my face in worship on Sundays, but every other day of the week as well. And if they'll turn from their wicked ways, their contribution to some of the problems that exist, then God says, I will hear from heaven. Their prayer will reach me. I will hear it loud and clear. I'll forgive their sin and will heal their land. In here, I think we get a microcosm, if you like, of those five marks of mission that we talk about. I'm not trying to say that this is all about the environment, but it does include it, right? Rains and locusts and plagues. And then at the end, God's saying, if you respond to that and repent, I will heal your land. Yes, that means society and relationships and structures, but it also means the land, right? It will be able to grow things that aren't devoured by locusts. It will have rain on it so that you can be full of food in the way that you need to be. But it comes as people respond to God in the right way. I'm not saying let's become a one-dimensional environmental-only church. Because without all of this, without the God behind it, it just won't happen. But I am saying we need to add this fifth dimension, if you like, this fifth mark onto what we do as part of what we do, informing the rest of what we do if we're going to respond to verses like this in a serious way. To end, I do want to begin to paint some pictures, I guess, of what this might mean. Ultimately, over this, I believe that where the church is, the people, the land around it should start to feel the benefit. If we really are the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, then our presence on the earth should start to transform it. So your friends, your neighbors should feel the benefit of being your friend or being your neighbor because in some way they're encountering God's presence through you. The challenge I want to pit before you today to end is what influence does the earth feel because of your presence on it? Filled with the Spirit of God in relationship with the Creator God. Does the earth feel any benefit at all? There's a retreat house in the south of Wales, a place called Falda Brennan. If you've ever read The Grace Outpouring or any of those books, it's all about this place. And people went there and turned it into this house of prayer that's been going for decades. And amazing things happen there. People literally drive up the drive and say, I don't know how my car got here. And then they end up giving their lives to Jesus. It's a place of miracles and wonders, and it's an amazing place. If you read the story of what happened there, there was a river that was supposed to flow from the valley in which this place is set, but for some reason it had dried up and no one quite knew why. And then as the people got there and started praying that God's blessing would fill this place and the people who came, but also the land on which it sat, out of nowhere this river started flowing again. No government official, no river expert, whatever they're called, has been able to explain how this river started flowing again. But the people who've been praying for the healing of the land know exactly why. Because God reopened an old spring, as it were. And we love that as imagery of his presence filling us. But maybe also it's the actual land, a reopening that this river's flowing again, bringing life to the natural environment and to the people after decades of being dried up. 
We think also of Pentecost that day, don't we, where the Spirit came. And if you notice that the Spirit filled the place before the Spirit filled the people. You hear the sound of the rushing wind as God's presence invades this upper room. And then he rests as tongues of fire on their head and gives them the ability to speak other languages. We're a church that wants to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. And we'll pray in a minute that he would have his way amongst us. But we recognize that his spirit fills places, fills areas, fills regions, fills towns, fills dried up rivers just as much as the spirit fills people. We want both, right? I would love it if in a few years' time we were looking and seeing how the natural environment around here was benefited because of what God was doing. What if the river at the end of the road was bringing life to even more people? What if the natural environment was beginning to heal? Animals were beginning to flourish here. What if this place was different because of God?